From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look at the top stories for the coming week from our Daybreak anchors all around the world. And just ahead on the program, here comes the iPhone 14. So how much does Apple have riding on this? I'm John Tucker in New York. I'm Stephen Carroll in London, where we'll have a new prime minister in the coming days as we wait for the results of the Conservative Party's leadership race. I'm Brian Curtis in Hong Kong. What's the real aim of Philippine President Ferdinand Marcos Jr.'s state visits to Singapore and Indonesia? I'm Amy Morris in Washington with a look at how the White House is getting its message out before the midterms. That's all straight ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend on Bloomberg 1130 New York, Bloomberg 991 Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 1061 Boston, Bloomberg 960 San Francisco, DAB Digital Radio London, Sirius XM 119, and around the world on BloombergRadio.com and via the Bloomberg Business app. Hi, everybody. I'm John Tucker, and let's start today's program with Apple's big events scheduled for this coming Wednesday. And joining me to talk through it is uh, Bloomberg's Mark Gurman. Mark, you cover Apple pretty closely. The event's scheduled for Wednesday at the Steve Jobs Theater, being billed by the company as a far-out event. Is this like a Grateful Dead far-out or like a space far-out? Yeah, that's funny. I mean, the invitation and their marketing around it, it's very much space-themed, right? The easiest explanation for the name Far Out is that they announced the event two weeks in advance, and they usually announce it about one week in advance, right? So technically speaking, when they announced it, it was, you know, Far Out. Uh, far Out also uh, means something that's cool. The astronomy theme fits <laughs> the new software, right? The new software itself on the new iPhone has an astronomy theme. There's been talk of satellite integration for the new phones for emergency communications in areas without cellular connection, right? So it's probably one of those things in the end uh, as the meaning behind the far-out name. Okay, does everybody have to get these new phones? I mean, if I have an iPhone 13, do I really need to update it with uh, the 14 model? No, I don't think the iPhone 14 is going to be that significant of an update coming from the iPhone 13, right? Even coming from the iPhone 12. But if you're coming from an iPhone 11 or earlier, it could be a decent upgrade, seeing if you're on an iPhone 11 or earlier, you don't have 5G, you don't have that new design, you don't have the upgraded camera system. So I think anyone with a phone older than the 12, uh, the 14 might be the one for you. Okay, the, the yeah, let's talk about the upgrades. I'm st- I don't know what, I think I've got 1G, but 5G, does, is it really making a difference? Do you really have to upgrade uh, in this cycle? You know, right now I haven't seen any significant software or hardware features or integrations from any of the phone makers at this point that make 5G really worthwhile. Sure, when you're in the web browser, things load a little bit more quickly. Attachments and emails download a little bit faster, 
right, if you want to download a movie before a flight onto your phone, you'll be able to probably do that over 5G, whereas maybe with 4G, uh, you didn't have enough time, right, in, to get those downloads in real fast while you're boarding a flight. But I will tell you, I've been using a 5G phone for now about two years or so, and I have not seen any specific features that have been per se unlocked by 5G. There's nothing you can do today on 5G that you couldn't do on 4G. Things just happen a little bit more quickly. There's also the battery life considerations too. If you have 5G uh, running at all, at all times, the battery life may be a little shaky, but there's settings and, and ways to work around that. So I don't think uh, 5G is this uh, smoking gun for uh, the cellular industry that some people thought it was. Okay, let's talk about the, the models that are coming out from Apple. Uh, they've got all the bells and whistles, as you pointed out. What else to get people excited? Yeah, I mean, these new phones, they're not going to be significant upgrades. You'll see slimmer bezels around the edges, so the display will look a little bit bigger. You have a new design for the front-facing camera and facial recognition sensors on the Pro models. If you do get the Pro model, there's going to be a 48-megapixel camera on the back for the first time. That's for the main wide-angle lens. That's a big upgrade from 12 megapixels. In addition to the new iPhones, you're also going to see three new Apple Watch models for the first time. So you're going to see an Apple Watch Series 8. That looks similar to the Series 7 from last year, but it adds a new health feature. That's a sensor to determine your body temperature, right? It could tell you uh, if you have a fever or not. There's also going to be some new women's health and fertility features. There's also going to be a new low-end Apple Watch. Two years ago, they introduced the Apple Watch SE for $279. It's a pretty good price for that device. That's going to be updated with a faster processor. Now, the big thing coming Wednesday is going to be the Apple Watch Pro. That's going to be the first super high-end Apple Watch. That's going to be aimed at extreme sports athletes and people who want the biggest Apple Watch on the market. That's going to have a bigger screen, new software features uh, for health tracking and fitness, fitness tracking. You're also going to see better battery life, as well as a higher-end, rugged uh, titanium case around that watch, too. I'm almost afraid to ask what that's going to cost. You know, I believe it will be somewhere between $900 and $1,000. Okay, so so not too bad. As long as we're talking about prices, what's the, what's the revenue mix? They're still getting most of the revenue from iPhones, right? Yeah, Apple, if you look at the iPhone itself, just the phone, they're getting between 50 and 60% a year of the revenue from the iPhone. Right, But I think that ignores the bigger picture. The bigger picture is that the Apple Watch only functions if you have an iPhone. The AirPods only function well if you have an iPhone. The HomePod, the Apple TV, right? The iPad integrates well with the iPhone. The Mac integrates well with the iPhone. So at a core, right, just looking at the numbers on paper, they're getting about half their revenue from the iPhone. But if you factor in that everything else really relies on owning an iPhone, you could say that basically the rest of all their revenue, services, TV+, iCloud included, App Store, right, comes from the iPhone. So if you want, you could really change their name from Apple Inc. to iPhone Inc. because all of their money is coming one way or another from the iPhone. All right, Mark, always a pleasure. Bloomberg's Mark Gurman covering Apple for us. Just a hand on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, the U.K. and the process of getting a new prime minister. I'm John Tucker, and this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors of the coming week. I'm John Tucker in New York. 
Expanding ties between the Philippines and Singapore are just ahead. But first, the UK gets a new prime minister in the coming days as the successor to Boris Johnson being picked by members of the country's Conservative Party. And for more, let's head to London and bring in Bloomberg Daybreak Europe anchor Stephen Carroll. John, Nathan, it's been a summer of campaigning and debates for Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak as they fight it out to win the votes of the around 150,000 members of the Conservative Party here in the UK. The winner of this internal party vote then becomes leader and will take over as Prime Minister. To discuss this, I'm joined by our UK Government and Treasury reporter, Joe Mays. Joe, thanks for being with us. Let's talk about the characters involved here. Liz Truss, Foreign Secretary, Rishi Sunak, former Chancellor, two people very well known here in the UK, but we've been scrutinising them much more closely in recent weeks. What did we learn about these two characters over the course of the campaign? Well, I think we saw a quite a clear division between them on their economics. So Liz Truss is someone who believes in a pretty Thatcherite approach to economics, very much inspired by her kind of idol, Margaret Thatcher. She's someone who has had many photo opportunities, almost mimicking the former prime minister. And that is something that plays well with that Conservative Party base. But in terms of those economics, she is positioning herself as very aggressive on things like tax cuts, for example, shrinking the size of the state, wanting to kind of roll back where we've come to during the pandemic. And you compare that to someone like Rishi Sunak, who has positioned himself as more cautious on economics, saying that it would be dangerous effectively to cut taxes right now and having a campaign focused strongly on the dangers of inflation, saying no, that is the big danger the UK economy faces and we must do everything we can to to prevent inflation spiraling out of control. And the Liz Truss response has been, well, I don't think my policies will stoke inflation and indeed they'll spur growth and that's what we should be going for right now. So that's been the big economic divide in this, in this debate, in this contest. Rishi Sunak saying, let's not stoke inflation. Liz Truss saying, let's go for growth and let's be more aggressive. So that, that, that's the first big thing I, I, I would say. And then beyond that, I'd say that both candidates have a pretty similar offer to the Conservative Party base on cultural issues, for example, like the war on woke, they call it, this idea mm. of trying to get rid of kind of liberal left tendencies in public life. And uh, just as one example, on foreign policy, they're both very pro-defending Ukraine. So there hasn't been too much differentiation on other issues. It's mainly been the economics where the divide has occurred. Yeah. And it's interesting because, of course, this is coming at a time when cost of living crisis, the main focus for the country. We had that news from the energy regulator that bills are going to be jumping in October, 80% for households on average are going to be paying more. So it's a, it's come at a time when the focus is exceptionally on the economics of the argument. But is was this really a campaign about policies or was it more about those other issues that you were talking about? I think it became more about those other issues for sure because both candidates set out a headline idea for their economics. So for Liz Truss, it was you know, no more handouts, let's cut taxes, Rishi Sunak, let's not stoke inflation. But neither of them then going much further on that, neither of them detailing in significant detail a long list of policies you know, for interrogation by the electorate. They were happy to kind of keep it vague such that when they get into the government, they can then not be pinned to specific positions they might have outlined. And they did prefer to spend time talking about those core heartwarming issues, you might say, among the Conservative Party base, such as you know clamping down on the small boats crossing the English Channel from France to England, for example, which is a very uh, an issue that really agitates the Conservative Party base, supporting Ukraine, as I mentioned, realising the opportunities of Brexit. So that was where much of the campaign happened on, on, on those issues and kind of trying to be painting yourself as the true blue candidate on those issues rather than getting bogged down in the weeds of like a very difficult economic situation. 
It's quite unusual, really, that you have this electorate of around 150,000 people that are going to pick the next Prime Minister. It's not a, a national election in the same way that we'd normally have. The party rules dictate that Boris Johnson is no longer going to be the leader and this is how they elect the new one. But it has been playing out in public. There's been 12 hustings. They've been broadcast on radio and television. It has been a subject of national debate. Is that going to be good or bad for the Conservative Party after this, do you think? I think it's going to be pretty bad. I think that what's happened is in an attempt to win, obviously both candidates have had to really attack each other. And Rishi Sunak particularly has gone very aggressive on Liz Truss, probably because of the fact he's seen lots of polling, indeed private polling, which has put him quite far behind in this race. So he's effectively been acting as if he has nothing to lose, you know, knowing he's very unlikely to get into a Liz Truss cabinet and therefore going all out attack. But by doing so, he is giving the opposition Labour Party ample ammunition to use in the future against Liz Truss because Labour can say, look, much of your own party thinks your own policies are going to be very bad. And the Rishi Sunak campaign has not been like shy with its language. So you have Dominic Raab, one of Rishi Sunak's biggest supporters, calling Liz Truss's policy offer like an electoral suicide note. Like, you don't get much stronger than that in terms mm. of uh, internal attack on the Conservative Party. So I think that will be bad and it will come back to bite this Conservative Party. And just adding to that, the public perception has been they're all fighting each other at a time when the country is kind of in crisis and a big storm is looming economically. And what have we had? A zombie government which was too busy talking to itself rather than running the country. So I think that that will be damaging. And does Liz Truss, as you pointed out, is according to the polling, the one who's who's been had a fairly steady lead uh, throughout this campaign, does she have the potential, if she is elected leader, to unite the party behind her? It will be a very difficult task because I think that her support amongst Conservative MPs is really quite thin. That is to say, she was barely the first choice of, I think, only a third or less than a third of Tory MPs when they had their chance to have a say in the first part of the contest. So she was not you know, the preferred candidate for many people. And when I look at the Conservative MPs, so many of them and their loyalty was bound to Boris Johnson by his victory in 2019. They felt like they owed his their seats to Boris Johnson. And the idea that he was someone who had a national appeal and he had the mandate of that victory. Both those things are gone with Liz Truss. So I really think that she will be quite vulnerable quite fast if things don't go well for her, if you know, the, the national crisis escalates. I can very quickly see her losing support. So it will be hard for her to unite the party, definitely. I mean, one of the big things assuming she wins uh, one of the big things will be her first cabinet you know, mm. does she bring in all the big beasts of the party all the different talents that would be one step towards unification I think she she probably should if she wants to achieve that but even th- even doing that I don't think would uh, defend her from that vulnerability I just described The economic backdrop for whoever wins is, is pretty bleak For sure and you, you almost wouldn't wish to be Prime Minister at this point in time All the economic indicators are flashing red and to become Prime Minister at this point in time is a pretty like thankless task, I would say. Really interesting times ahead in any case. Thank you very much, Joe Mays, our UK government reporter, for those insights. I'm Stephen Carroll in London. You can catch us every weekday morning here for Bloomberg Daybreak Europe, beginning at 6am in London and 1am on Wall Street. John? Stephen, thanks a lot. And just to hit on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, the Philippines President Ferdinand Marcos Jr. eyes relations with Singapore and Indonesia. I'm John Tucker. This is Bloomberg.
Broadcasting live from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Bloomberg 1130. To Washington, D.C. Bloomberg 991. To Boston. Bloomberg 1061. To San Francisco. Bloomberg 960. To the country. Sirius XM Channel 119. To London. DAB Digital Radio. And around the globe. The Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. You're listening to Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, and just ahead, celebrating the CHIPS Act. I'm John Tucker in New York with your global look ahead of the top stories for investors in the coming week. The Philippines going to be in the spotlight. Joining us now to tell us why, Bloomberg Daybreak Asia host Brian Curtis and Doug Krisner. John, we take a look at Philippine President Ferdinand Marcos Jr.'s upcoming state visits to Singapore and Indonesia. This may be a good time to tease out the direction of what the new president means by developing an independent foreign policy. Independent of what is the obvious question, once again the Philippines will find itself trying to maneuver carefully between the United States and China as it moves forward with foreign policy. Joining us now is Bloomberg's Andreo Colonzo to discuss this. Andreo, thanks very much for joining us. So he'll visit Indonesia from September 4th to the 6th and then Singapore from September 6th to the 7th. And obviously, there are a lot of very interesting discussions there. But let's go back to what I outlined a few moments ago about this delicate balance between handling the U.S. and China. What can we expect there? Okay, so as you mentioned in your intro, um, Marcos has been touting his independent foreign policy. So he has said that national interests will will always be the guide to his foreign policy direction. If we can recall, um, this is the same thing that his uh, predecessor, uh, Rodrigo Duterte, has said in his six years as president. So we can say that this is a kind of a continuation of what the previous administration has said. So he has also said that uh, the Philippines will be a friend to all and an enemy to none. So he has, uh, Marcos has repeated this as a candidate and now as president. So he has emphasized cooperation and consensus. And regarding the South China Sea, he has also said that he will not abandon even one square inch of territory there. So um, that will entail really um, having a balancing act between China and the U.S. Uh, uh, If you can recall, the the Philippines is a former U.S. colony, so we have maintained uh, strong military ties with the U.S. We are the U.S. uh, the U.S. is our lone um, defense uh, treaty ally here in the Philippines. And then we have China. Um, Duterte, the former president, moved the Philippines closer to, to China in the past six years. And Marcos coming in uh, during the past uh, few months have also indicated that he will foster those ties with China. So typically, Philippine presidents visit neighboring ASEAN countries first uh, before uh, they kind of move themselves onto the international stage. Can you give us kind of a basic view of the current view of um, Mr. Marcos when it comes to ASEAN? So yeah, so that's correct. Um, Duterte uh, visited the ASEAN first, uh, uh, Southeast Asian nations first during his, uh, his term. And um, that's, well, frankly, that's because of practical reasons, because those are the neighboring countries and they're closer to visits. And then uh, regarding Marcos, he has said, he has described the ASEAN as a very important regional organization. 
Suhan, uh, um, the ambassadors from Southeast Asian nations have paid him a courtesy visit um, uh, a month after he won the presidency in May. So he Marco said this in the context of pandemic recovery. He said that the ASEAN and uh, Southeast Asian nations will be important uh, partners in pandemic recovery. And his goal is really to recover or regain the Philippines' status as one of the fastest-growing economy in the region uh, pre-pandemic. And then another thing, another aspect by which uh, Marcos wants to engage a fellow or neighboring Southeast Asian nations is in resolving territorial tensions with China. So the Philippines has uh, ongoing um, territorial disputes with China regarding portions of the South China Sea. And Marcos wants to tap the ASEAN in resolving this conflict. And in particular, he wants the code of conduct being developed uh, between um, China and the Association of Southeast Asian Nations to be finished. Uh, he, he views this as an important step towards uh, resolving this this conflict with China. Andreo, thanks very much for joining us. Bloomberg's Andreo Colonzo in Manila. I'm Brian Curtis, along with Doug Krisner. You can catch us every weekday here for Bloomberg Daybreak Asia, beginning at 6 a.m. in Hong Kong and 6 p.m. on Wall Street. John? Brian and Doug, thanks very much. Just ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, President Biden will be taking a victory lap over the CHIPS Act. I'm John Tucker. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm John Tucker in New York. President Biden's going to be taking a victory lap of sorts over the CHIPS Act and celebrating the groundbreaking of a new Intel facility in Ohio. And for more, let's head to our Bloomberg 99.1 newsroom in Washington and to Amy Morris. Amy. All right. Thank you, John. Joining me now to talk about this Ohio trip victory lap and some other things going on at the White House. Bloomberg White House reporter Josh Wingrove joins me now. Josh, it's great to have you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's uh, been a busy couple of weeks. Not it much of a summer break has, for some No, folks, eh? not much of a summer break for some of us. And that's sort of what the president wants to be talking about, well, how he spent his summer the president was going to be in Ohio for the groundbreaking of an Intel factory in Ohio. This is huge. Um, the single largest private sector investment in Ohio history. So fill us in what this is about. Yeah, I mean, Biden has been talking about this for quite some time. Uh, this is just a major bill that kind of fits the central casting kind of image he wants you to have, which is that manufacturing, in particular high-tech manufacturing, is coming back to the U.S. This is one of those files... You know, we don't talk about that much about how him and Trump agreed on a few things, but him and Trump are kind of cut from the same cloth here in terms of onshoring this kind of stuff. Sure. So he's been talking about this for some time. And, you know, I think he, broadly speaking, wants to just go there and celebrate. Now, this bill, uh, this project, excuse me, was linked to the wrangling over this bill that had many names, but was a semiconductor subsidy bill. It was the Yusika for a while. It's been, you know, is that endless the chips frontiers. Act? This is now the CHIPS bill. Yeah. So finally passed. Bit of a skinny version. Uh, when it was up in the air, so too was this project proceeding a little bit up in the air, at least in the eyes of some. And so it's kind of a double victory for him to say, hey, we got this through. 
Remember, that bill passed, you know, if I recall, an hour or two before Joe Manchin came out and said, you know what, actually, I am supporting an Inflation Reduction Act. So this was kind of a domino effect that they saw in the summer. They locked in this bill, in particular, the Republican votes on this CHIPS bill. And then they tried to and succeeded in ramming through the Inflation Reduction Act with only Democrat votes in a way that ticked off Republicans. Uh, And then after that, their student loan announcement. So, so this is one of the big bills, along with that Inflation Reduction Act, along with a burn pit bill that passed in the summertime right. on veterans' health care. You know, but for a closely divided Senate uh, and, and House, a lot of stuff moved in the last uh, uh, month or two. Now, and getting one more question about the CHIPS bill and about this particular plant being open, going becoming open, the a national security component is there, and that's part of what helps it be bipartisan. I, yeah. I lose my voice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is. I mean, yeah. I think you see, you do see a uh, broad consensus right now among Democrats and Republicans about the need to get a bit more hawkish on China as an economic rival, if not more than that. A lot of people go beyond that, but uh, so that's where this comes from. And so, you know, even though it is, you know, a straight up subsidy bill, you know, maybe it's not something that sort of a classical Republican might like to do, uh, uh, that there is support on both sides of the aisle for this. So you'll see him celebrating that. The, the The Senate race there is interesting, and it kind of speaks to what has been a low uh, tide moment for Joe Biden's approval. It's rebounded in the last little while, but it got pretty low there for a while when gas prices were soaring and other things weren't looking so great. Uh, uh, they've, they've got a candidate, Tim Ryan, who has so far declined to appear with Biden. And uh, we think that that will be the case uh, on this trip as well, perhaps, um, and so the, it's 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 put sort of a fresh light on this question of like how useful will Joe Biden be to Democrats on the campaign trail? And signs are, in particular, in Senate races, that he he is underpolling his candidates but not dragging them down. If that makes sense, there's almost like a detachment where they can kind of run with a little bit of arm's length from Joe Biden uh, and, and maybe do well. But again. Ohio, if I mean, if Democrats flip that Ohio Senate seat, that, that will be a sign that they had an incredible time, <laughs> incredible, because uh, it, 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 Republicans are still expected to hold that one. And we are talking with Bloomberg White House reporter Josh Wingrove about the coming week at the White House and some of the things that we are seeing that have come out of the summertime. Josh, you just described two sides of the same coin, and I want to throw you a little curveball, okay? Mm-hmm. Because you were talking about how a lot of things have been getting done with this bipartisan sort of uncomfortables, but and yet by bipartisan nature under this administration. And at the same time, candidates who are up for re-election or up for the midterms or what have you are distancing themselves from the president. So you've got on the one hand, he seems to be getting stuff done. And on the other hand, don't come campaign for me. What's happening here? I mean, it's just that his, his numbers are low. Um, you know, there are questions um, uh, being open, openly whispered among Democrats about whether he should run again. Uh, and so a lot of those vulnerable swing Democrats just don't think that Joe Biden is an asset. You know, there's probably a middle ground here where some of them think he's neither an asset nor a liability. Um, and others are been, have been happy to campaign with him. But when he did a sort of campaign style event last week, which was sort of kicking off what will be a lot of travel, we think, for Joe Biden, uh, it was in Maryland, which uh, has a Republican governor, but he's a sort of moderate Republican. Larry Hogan can't run again. Uh, the Democrats uh, uh, and Larry Hogan himself have sort of signaled the Democrats look like they'll pick up that governorship. So he kind of went into this sort of deep blue, friendly turf. Uh, we saw him in his hometown or near his hometown uh, uh, as, as well. Um, so uh, with with a rally uh, near Scranton, and so uh, you know, I think he's he, he's kind of do what he can. He's going to places that he can go to, uh, but we'll see him definitely go places with 
without certain candidates showing up for him. Yeah, but Ohio is deep red. Ohio is not friendly territory. It is. It is not friendly territory. You know, Ohio used to be. I mean, we all remember when it was like the swing state, or you know, one sure. of one of the crucial swing states. Just demographically, it's just not that way anymore. It's just profiled more and more Republican. Uh, the Republican candidate there, J.D. Vance. Uh, had uh, Trump's endorsement. Um, he's in a, in a race with Tim Ryan, who's a congressman who's running for the Democrats for the Senate seat. The other Senate seat is held by a Democrat, so I think that you know maybe there are some hopes. But uh, broadly speaking, you know Ryan is campaigning as if he's trailing Vance, and so uh, that uh, and he's sort of trying to campaign with a little bit of arm's length from Biden. So I think that's why we will see uh, a continued preference from Tim Ryan not to show up with Joe Biden. So this push is sort of a made in America push. Yeah. You know, we're going to start making our chips here. We're going to start bringing more stuff onshore yeah, and not familiar. overseas. Yeah, it does. It sounds yeah. really familiar. Um, what else, though, are we expecting to see from the White House as as the the Biden administration and his proxies and secretaries of of the of the uh, of of his cabinet make the rounds nationwide to let them know what what we've been doing all summer. Yeah, I mean, you'll be, I think, um, uh, it, it's going to be all of, uh, be, it'll be widespread. That's sure. guess, is the way yeah. to say it. So number one, they obviously want to talk about that Dobbs decision. We're seeing just tremendous motivation for voters right now who are angry that the Supreme Court overturned protection for abortion rights. And of course, some states are moving now to restrict uh, abortion either entirely or in virtually all cases. Uh, Democrats see that as a huge core issue. They think that if they get a couple more votes in the Senate, they could vote to codify it. So we're going to hear them talk about that. We're going to hear them talk about infrastructure. You know, the week after this coming week, they'll be in Boston talking for an infrastructure event. Uh, Of course, that infrastructure bill passed as well. And that's something Joe Biden uh, wants to keep talking about. And as that sort of rolls out, that money starts rolling and they put signs up and they start paving stuff and building stuff. You're going to see more of that as well. Let me jump in on that because this infrastructure issue has been going on for so long and it passed a long time ago, didn't yeah, it? Yeah. Remember, they, were, they, they held up on that because they thought they were going to deal with Mansion. Right. The wheels come off it, it collapses, kind of revised, collapses again in December, and then no one talks for it. And then it was, uh, you know, eight months or so later that Joe Manchin, seven months or so later that Joe Manchin came out. So, but yes, that this so is the bill that passed last year, but they've started rolling through it. It takes time to get these projects going. And, you know, they've, they've decided that they're going to have signs that say bipartisan infrastructure sign, uh, uh, law on it. Uh, and so if you, you're going to start seeing kind of elements of this. Now, I should note that that is a bipartisan infrastructure law. It's not Joe Biden's Democrats-only law. So there are going to be Republicans out there, rightfully, who voted for it, you know, talking about it as well. Sure, this bridge stuff. brought to you by our bipartisan bill. Right, right. But, it, you know, I think if in the interest of fairness, it was more Democrats than Republicans, in particular in the House. It was only uh, about a dozen or so, give or take, Republicans that voted for that thing. So uh, the Rep- you'll, you'll hear Democrats talking more about that one uh, as, as well. And then, you know, I think just broadly, Joe Biden is going to give uh, speeches about what he's calling the battle for the soul of America. That also might sound familiar. That was his slogan in 2020 when mm-hmm. he spoke about Donald Trump, uh, or when he's running against Donald Trump. Now Trump finds himself in the news again. Joe Biden, I'm sure, doesn't hate the fact that Donald Trump's in the spotlight again. Uh, in a more, having Trump on voters' minds probably helps Joe Biden a little bit. Meanwhile, on the flip side, Republicans really want the focus not to be on Trump. They don't want they want the focus not to be on Dobbs necessarily. Depending on the race, they want it to be, of course, on inflation, which remains at record highs in the U.S. Also across much of the developed world, gas prices have been trending down, but are still comparatively pretty high. They want these midterm elections to be a referendum on the economy. They want it to be a referendum on inflation. And Republicans want it to be a referendum on whether Joe Biden and Democrats 
rained too much money down on the economy and helped sort of stoke this fire that otherwise might have been smaller. Okay, Josh, what are you watching for in the coming week? You know, I think we're going to see uh, Vice President Harris come out as well and talk a little bit more about Dobbs. We're going to watch to that on Monday for those tracking the question of who the 2024 candidates will will be. I'm paid to track that question. I can't imagine people do that for necessarily fun. Uh, but on Monday, he's going on a couple of Labor Day events in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. I think this is interesting. I think we, we have reported that Joe Biden is planning to run again. He is 79 years old. He's already... Uh, will he be the oldest uh, uh, president to seek uh, re-election if he did so? But uh, all signs are he's planning. There are no signs that it is a smokescreen. And so on Labor Day, this guy that credits union members with giving him the nomination in the first place and ultimately the presidency is making a note of doing a couple Labor Day union events in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, two of the most crucial swing states. I think that is worth noting. So if you are looking for breadcrumbs about whether Joe Biden will indeed pull the trigger and try to run again, there are a couple. So we'll see him in Labor Day on those swing states. Josh Wingrove covers the White House for Bloomberg News, and that's what's going on in the nation's capital. For more of our political news coverage, you can tune into Balance of Power with David Weston weekdays at noon Wall Street time and Sound On with Joe Matthew weekdays at 5 p.m. Wall Street time right here on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Amy Morris, and this is Bloomberg. John. Amy Morris reporting from our Bloomberg 991 newsroom in Washington. Amy, thanks a lot. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. Join us again Monday morning at 5 a.m. Wall Street time for the latest on markets overseas and the news you need to start your day. I'm John Tucker, and this is Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, The promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, Top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.